is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello, this is the Enter Sad Men podcast. I'm Richard. I'm here with Steve and Mark as ever. And this is episode number 51. This week, our theme, we've uh, cheekily called uh, Nightcrawler after the uh, Judas Priest track. So yes, let's kick off this episode 51. And how did we get on, gents, this week? We've picked some interesting finds, I think, and maybe not the usual. No, not the usual, no. Well, you've already mentioned that you, everyone's go-to would have been the Scorpions, wouldn't it? But we, we swerved them. No idea why, but we did. And I only didn't do Wasp because we'd done them a couple of weeks ago with the Crimson Idol. So that ruled out that avenue of pleasure. So I took an absolute stab in the dark, and I think I wasn't alone, but... My stab in the dark wound up with a band who I knew nothing about called Spider and their debut album, Rock and Roll Gypsies. And yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, well, as soon as that came out of Tico Torres's tombola of topics and themes, I was thinking Praying Mantis. And I thought, well, do you know what? I missed them the first time around. Everybody, but everybody who listens to Praying Mantis thinks the sun shines out of their ass. So I thought, well, I can't go wrong, really. So, yeah, I went for Praying Mantis's, well, I was going to say debut album. I kind of think it's their only album because it's that lineup's only album. So uh, it's Time Tells No Lies from 1981. Richard, um, for a man who is so resolutely, you know, not 70s, you got very 70s again. <laughs> yeah, it would have been so easy to go for the Scorpions, wouldn't it, for me? Um, yes, but I it would. I yes, it would. Yes, it I would. I know, I know, I know. Should, <laughs> should we? Should we? Should we have gone there? Yeah, let's find out um, as, as we record this episode. I, I went back and settled eventually on the second appearance of Uriah Heep in uh, this podcast, and I went for the album from 1977 called Firefly. We always do these things in chronological order, so that means first up is Richard. Talk us through Uriah Heep's Firefly. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so 1977 this was released in, in February. It was their 10th studio album, and it was the first to feature John Lawton of uh, Lucifer's Friend fame, on vocals. It followed the departure of their longtime vocalist, David Byron, due to his on and off stage behaviour. Whether did he leave, was he fired, depends which story you read. Stories including the fact that he couldn't actually remember some of the words to their music on stage, presumably various substances going through his body, who knows. Um, but yeah, so, so David Byron departed. After a big search, they settled on uh, John Lawton. And, and, and this is felt to be somewhat of a revival for <laughs> Uriah Heep. Um, their previous album, High and Mighty, hadn't done too well. And I think Lawton really helped inject a bit more energy uh, into the band. As an album, I, I mean, if you read the reviews, it's not considered by some sort of diehard Heap fans as a, as a proper Heap album. But to a lot of people, it signalled a new beginning. In terms of the details, so it was recorded at the back end of November, uh, it was October, November 1976, and it was released in February 1977. The date is important, I think, because it was the same year that, that some really key albums came out from the likes of Foreigner 
and Journey and Kansas. And indeed, I mean, just a couple of episodes ago, we, we reviewed Foreigner's first album. But uh, I think it, that there are some other influences creeping into their, to their sound on this. In terms of its la- the label, it was uh, produced by uh, Jerry Bron, the uh, owner-manager of Bronze Records, released on Bronze in the UK, uh, on Warner Brothers in North America. Lengthwise, it's nice and tidy at a little over 35 minutes. It's recorded at Roundhouse Studios in London. And yeah, so in terms of personnel, so John Lawton joined on vocals. Mick Box, as always, on guitar. Ken Hensley on keyboards, guitars and vocals. Uh, Trevor Boulder joined from, uh, he was ex-Spiders of Mars. He replaced John Wetton on bass. And uh, Lee Kerslake, as ever, on drums. Chart-wise, no evidence that it did much in the UK, but interestingly, it did uh, tickle the uh, Billboard 200 on in the US, and it reached uh, number 166. Not really any info on sales. I think it did okay for them, but not massively. And track-wise, as follows, eight tracks, four on each side. Side one's The Hanging Tree, Been Away Too Long, Who Needs Me, and Wise Man. Side two is Do You Know, Rolling On, Sympathy, and the title track, Firefly. It's been enjoyable for me. I, I think there are a couple of really good tracks on this. Some not so good, but I don't think anything that's absolutely awful. I think it's got a very interesting blend of styles on it. And certainly, my goodness, Lawton's vocals uh, really have an impact on uh, on the energy and um, and I think the and, and the way the songs are, uh, are presented. So yeah, it's been a good listen for me. Uh, I'd not heard this uh, of Heaps album before. Uh, how about how did you two get on? Oh, I think it's fascinating. This, I mean, you you reference there some of the bands that were also producing albums in this year, and you can hear a lot of genre hopping. I think in this, and I think a lot of heap diehards from reviews I've read said they were quite unhappy with it because of the lack of experimentation for which they were apparently legendary. And I'm guessing by that they mean an absence of any of those sort of drawling, sprawling eight, nine, ten minute jobs that that they used to do back in the day, because these are all very sort of pop single length. Now, I'm no fan. We have done, as you mentioned, Eddie, we, we did do a Uriah Heap album in a previous episode, Look at Yourself, from way back when. That's So that's all I know of Uriah Heap. But I'm not sure you can accuse them on Firefly of sitting still or being in any way samey, because I think there's a whole load of stuff going on here. I really do. Mm. It's really, really interesting. To that end, I actually think it's a bit all over the place, but in a good way. Very entertaining. I mean, really seriously, I don't find it a challenge at all. And I'd go back and listen to it again, which is high praise indeed. Well, mm. that sounds a bit smug, but I think it's high praise. Two things, two things make this stand out. And it's the two newcomers to the band. I mean, we know about John Norton's vocals, but better still is Trevor Boulder's bass playing. I mean, it's just off the scale. Mm. A week after we reviewed Atomic Roosters in Hearing Of and the complete absence of a bass player on the fact that because of Vincent Crane didn't like four stringers because he said they tended to wander everywhere. I would imagine Mr. Boulder was someone he had in mind when he was um, when he was lining up that kind of description. I think he's an absolute genius in the art of playing the bass as an instrument as well as just the timekeeping uh, mechanism. Brilliant. I just think this whole album is something that should be, you know, listen to by anyone you made the point there's nothing awful on this and therefore it will score well i found nothing awful on here either i've really really enjoyed it really rather enjoyed it certainly a couple of the albums 
in this episode are very interesting explorations, aren't they? Mm. Mark, how did you get on? I've decided that I'm a big John Lawton fan. I mean, no surprise there, given how much I loved Lucifer's Friend. And this is just a completely different album to Look at Yourself, which is the one that we reviewed back in, I think it was episode 21, wasn't it? Completely different album. Ken Hensley wrote, I think, 95% of this. It's a completely different musical style. And why wouldn't it be? You know, we're six years on from from that album. But it's, it's a much heavier album. I don't know how much of that is Lawton's influence coming from Lucifer's Friend via, what was the Eurovision? The Les Humphreys Singers, was it? <laughs> I think. Um, you know, So he, he arrives at Uriah Heap from Lucifer's Friend via the Les Humphreys Singers. But I don't know whether it's his influence, but this is a heavy album. This is a really heavy album. And I really, really enjoyed it. I don't know where we're going to disagree on it. We are going to disagree. I'm absolutely convinced of that because I, yes, there are some, there are some bits of it that I can take or leave, but I was really impressed given how bewildered I was after listening to look at yourself and, you know, that sort of tumbleweed of kind of drift that goes through that album. And suddenly we've got a banging, little killer album on my hands here i thought so yeah i've loved it really enjoyed it really enjoyed it so here's a little snippet again of a few of the tracks uh, just to give you a bit of a flavor of what we've been listening to in the last week or so Mark talked about heavy earlier and this album starts with a really proper heavy prog starter called The Hanging Tree. Um, It starts with these otherworldly keyboards before the rhythm sort of sits in and Lawton's voice, he's immediately apparent, isn't it? I'm with you, Mark. I mean, frankly, bye Byron. I'm I'm in a good place. (laughs) My goodness, what a voice. What a voice. I, I mean, did you hear that after Byron's departure, they considered Coverdale, they considered Ian Hunter, and they even considered Gary Holton from uh, Alf Wiedersehen Pet, who <laughs> <laughs> was then uh, previously with a band called Heavy Metal Kids, that, who might feature, who knows, at, at some point in our, in our podcast. But, yeah, they got, uh, they got Lawton. And what a difference he made, eh? Honey. Absolute honey. I had to double check when I put this on to make sure I was actually listening to the right album because it, it just doesn't sound like Uriah Heap. You know, if you go fast forward a bit, I, I, I've had and had for a long time Bominog and I had Raging Silence, the two kind of fairly, well, say modern Uri- Uriah Heap albums, late, late 70s, early 80s. That's as modern as you get for me. 
And this is a different band. It's an absolutely different band. And I just think that the bass line, Steve, you're right. You know, that bass is just dancing all over it. You've got John Lawton, who sounds like he's been there for years. So comfortable, that vocal. Just, I think this is a great opening track. Great opening track. And I'm having to come to terms with the fact that I may actually be getting into prog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the degrees of heavy. It's not, I mean, it's not. You know, we're not talking F and J heavy. I mean, there are degrees of heaviness, aren't there? And it's, I mean, it, I, I, I like this. I, I don't think it's that heavy, if I'm honest. I, mean, I know everyone, people who brought up with Uriah Heat will say, yes, it is. I'm getting a little bit of modern day cowboy in this, which is that lovely sort of hooky riff and the beat and the feeling about it. It's just a nice, it just needs to be longer. It's my one real problem with it. It just, it's, it's a five yeah. minute track, really. But, um, you know. <laughs> it's not often we say that, is it? I know. No, <laughs> no, it was at 340, I think, isn't Something it? Like that. And that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, this, they could have done five and a half, six minutes, because being absolutely, yeah, because it fades away really unmemorably. And you just think, well, yeah, don't fade away, just carry the song on. <laughs> it's, it's like they didn't know how to finish it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, we say so much about these hypnotic beats. I mean, you say that that bass driven. Just chuck, just da, 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 da. I mean, that, that you could listen to that forever, couldn't you? You know, and very, very clever phrasing how it then just sort of disap- you know, goes into the, the slower chorus with the synths and the harmonized vocals and then it just sits back into that beat again. Yeah, really, really good first track. Really good first track. So, uh, Hanging Tree gives way to Been Away Too Long, which is, yeah, it's a more soulful, I guess, slower track too. Again. John Lawton introduced himself on the first track, but my goodness, what an emotional performance he gives in this, doesn't he? Um, I, I love the the build in the middle, lovely layers. Um, is it too early to talk about the production? I, I, I think Ron did an <laughs> unbelievable job on this album. This is 1977. It's so clear, the production on this album. You, you know on Lucifer's Friend, the opening track, Ride the Sky, opens with that French horn. And, and you kind of go, where the fuck did that come from? Who, who had the idea of going, let's put a French horn on the front of that? That will sound excellent. And this is the same. You suddenly get this kind of church organ running through it. When I talk about heavy, I don't mean, obviously, thrashy. I'm talking about there's a weight to yeah. it, a real yeah. weight to it. Yeah. I think yeah. there is with this as well. It's I love it. I love this song. I think that two absolutely cracking songs to open this album. Yeah, mm. I couldn't agree. This is weightier than its predecessor, I, I, I think, and I, I preferred this. This, I, Funnily enough, I didn't when I when I first heard it. It, it took a bit of getting used to Lawton's singing absolutely elevates it, but Boulder again, there's some wonderful work by Boulder in this. If you, if you, any, I'd, I'd advise anyone to listen to this album through on the bass line alone because it's, it's a great listen. He's, 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 he's not timekeeping. It's a brave call, wasn't it? Sack him, Byron. I mean, that's that's a that's a mm. brave call, but it, you know, Lawton, great call. Anyway, there's a great guitar there from Box in there as well, some crashing drums, and, and it's just into a massive finish. One of those early seventies mm. prog finishes, you know, for the late seventies, it just rolls and rolls and rolls, and I and I love that kind of thing. Works really well on this song. I think, it, as I say, it is better than the Hanging Tree. Like them both, it's a great start to the album, and then Lawton so far has taken this band to a to a new height. For two relatively short songs, they packed a lot into these first two tracks, didn't they? And I don't know about you two, but when it came to track three, it was a bit of a shock because we we get into Who Needs Me, which was, you know, not a bad track. 
is just so just straight ahead rock, isn't it? It's written by Lee Kerslake. I don't know if that has a, a bearing on it. I'm sure we might come back to them later in the episode, but I mean, this almost isn't far away from status quo, is it? <laughs> um, well, we're going to get closer to status quo, I think, before this po- podcast is over, aren't we? Uh, it's kind of out of scope for hmm. your eye heap, really, isn't it? It's not what you expect them to do. It's, and therefore, it takes a bit of getting used to because you spend the first listen through it going, what, what are they doing? What the hell's this? What's this doing on here? And then it's only after like the second, third listen that you kind of put that to one side and just accept it for what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice rock and roll tune, isn't it? That's all it is. Yeah. The one little bit of variety, uh, building sort of queen-type or- operatic harmonies with Lawton screaming over the top before it then sits back into the beat. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, right. Who Needs Me uh, gives way to track four, which is Wise Man, last track on slide one. So this was uh, was their attempt at a single, released um, as a single from, from this album. And I mean, it's a much, much slower song overall. And I mean, basically the music just provides a bed to an unbelievable vocal performance from, from Lawton. And I think the blind man is mentioned and son. I mean, I did, I did think about uh, <laughs> yeah. White Snake. I don't know if you two did. I'm still getting into this track, I think. I'm enjoying it. Not the strongest on the album for me. So, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice. Well, you have to, you have to get through the, the start, don't you, which kind of it's, it's just so anodyne. It sounds like the congregation filing in for the start of a Sunday morning gospel service, but it picks up very nicely after that and... Yeah, I mean, your blind man reference, it's, it's, since I heard him singing, I'm like a blind man lost in the sun, I just thought, oh, my God, I mean, it's it's, it's too close for comfort. And and also, of course, I mean, the other similarity, of course, is that, you know, Coverdale takes that one to church and Lawton does exactly the same with this. And it, it just, by the time you get to the finish of this song, he's, he's just in show-off mode. It's brilliant. And so it is a song that builds, and I think, it's, it certainly builds with me over the course of the week. It's still not, it's, it's not amazing, but I do like it. I kind of feel like it's a song where Ken Hensley went to California, knocked on the door of Walt Disney and said, should you ever write a film about a lion cub that has to take on a pride, <laughs> having been orphaned? I've got a song I think might do quite well. Um because there is there is a kind of a circle of life vibe to this song. That's that's what I picked up. The moment it started, it's like, this is the circle of life. This could this would fit well on a Walt Disney movie. I don't mind it. I'm like you, Richard, I think I'm still getting into it. I, I think it's it is, it's a showcase for John Lawson. Mm. And I could listen to it for that reason alone forever and ever. I struggle to warm to it though. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, so let's flip the album over and uh, track five, track one of side two is a track called Do You Know? Well, faster tempo starts, certainly side two, isn't it? I mean, and there is a very weighty organ (laughs) through this, isn't there? I've got this wouldn't have looked out of place on Bat Out of Hell. It's so lovey. It just feels like it feels like something out of a musical. I don't know. It just even sounds like the meat. 
You're right. It does. I hadn't even put that together, but you're absolutely right. It doesn't half shift. It's all right. I don't mind it. It doesn't half shift, but it just it's a song from the shows. Song yeah. from the yeah. shows. <laughs> from the shows. Tune in later, folks, to find out whether Steve scored this any higher from than anything on <laughs> yeah. Bat Out of Hell. This would elevate Bat Out of Hell. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, let's wait till we get to Dead Ringer. I can't top that, Steve. I think you've summed it up in a nutshell there. All right, so track six is a, is a track called Rolling On. They do the mood shifts well on this album, don't they? It's beautifully mixed up. Uh, and uh, now we get back to a, I would say a slower, soulful... I mean, I, I've got a, a bad company vibe on this one. I don't know about, about you two. I really like the the start i love the build particularly into the chorus if there's one thing that doesn't work for me there's a break in the middle that just feels a little bit out of place which is a shame it's a real shame so it, it it's lost a little bit of marks uh down to that but in terms of the build at the start and and again the ending um i really like this song but at least they reprieve the situation when they come out of that midsection and they serenely drift back into this role and it finishes beautifully. So it's, it's, it's like a sandwich, isn't it? And, and the two bits of bread are perfect, just that little bit in the middle. If you've got any sense of hippie in you, this is just to die for. I mean, this is straight on the hammock playlist. It's just a joy. I love it. And it does exactly what it says on the tin. It just rolls on. I think it's divine. Um, and I can deal with that middle bit because I know what it's building to. Track of the album for me. Mm. Absolutely track of the album. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It's hypnotic. It's it's laid back. And you're right, you know, if you have got any sense of kind of, you know, an Afghan and a bong and a fucking patchouli stick, this is it, isn't it? This is a, it's just, just wonderful. And John, I wonder what all of these songs would have been like if Byron was still around. Because I just think he adds so much to to the band, to the album, to the songs. An astonishing performance, really. Okay, so two tracks left, and uh, the next to last track, track seven, is Sympathy. So this is sometimes included in, you know, sort of, you, if you look for your top, the, the top ten favourite heap tracks, um, of, the, of their later catalogue, uh, Sympathy does does appear. Um, I think there are better tracks on this album than this, uh, but it gallops along quite nicely. I quite like the dual vocals on this, and my goodness, Lawton really goes for the high notes, doesn't he? Mm. Again, there's some really nice breakdowns throughout the, the track. There's a really nice piece of around th- three or so minutes in, uh, and then it builds and builds and builds again to a, a great finish with uh, Lawton doing yet another sort of child in time kind of Gillen-esque uh, set of wailing. Yeah, it's all right. I, I couldn't quite get past that sort of shadows guitar sound at the start, which um, and it almost feels like it would it would sit snugly in Pulp Fiction, some of it. But it's okay. Yeah, I don't quite get the the appeal it has with Heap fans, but I'm not a Heap fan, so I don't know. But it's okay. It's okay. I'm not really surprised you don't. Get it, Steve? Because you know you're talking about a set of fans who also put July morning at the top of the heap. Oh well, there you go. Hey, hey. See what I did that. Yeah, and I don't understand that either. No. So no. You know, I don't think we're expected to understand, are we? It's I'm not immersed in this stuff. I take it at face value, and uh, it's all right. I mm. having spent this 
section of the show gushing about John Lawton, the screeching really gets on my fucking tits. <laughs> it really does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, finish the album then with the title track, uh, which is uh, Firefly. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated to hear what you think of this because there seem to be three very definite parts to this and I'm not quite sure they go together. <laughs> I've struggled with this one. I mean, it's a very slow start. I feel the middle section could have started a, a lot earlier because for me, that's the best bit. And then there's yet another rhythm to finish it. Well, it, it's, I say, nothing bad about it. Bit of an underwhelming finish for me. I mean, I, do you, Agree, disagree? No, no, I agree massively. It starts like one of those sort of slow curtains thrown open, um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers songs. And then, um, you know, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. That probably wasn't from that. And it finishes like bloody high school musical. Um, And then the nice stuff's in the middle. So it's very interesting. And I don't quite get it. Well, ditto all of that. I really struggle with this song. You know, as the title track, it's... uh... I, I kind of sat there and thought, well, this is a kind of classic prog track because there's no rhyme or reason to it and things are sort of slightly just bolted on and and in the chorus I find quite dirgy. And, um, yeah, it's the weak point of the album for me, but, mm. again, I just wonder what I'm missing. Richard, you mentioned Queen earlier in the conversation and this is this is a song where I really feel like they've tried to go Queen and with the harmonies and the layered harmonies particularly and the phasing on the voices, yeah, it's all very bow bow rap, isn't it? And mm. um, yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan, I have to say. This is prolonging that, isn't it? When it doesn't really need I mean the beauty of bow rap is that it was um everything was short and sharp and shocky, wasn't it? And this is just this drags, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know what they're trying to do with that opening couple of minutes, but it's it goes on far too long mm. without really going anywhere. And I've never, I've always made the point, a song doesn't have to go anywhere if it's if it's any good, but this is. Yes. Yeah, it's a funny end, funny ending. Joint longest track on the album at uh, 6 minutes 21. So there we go. Yeah, so for, I think for all of us, a little bit of a disappointing finish, but let's hear about, uh, well, whether it's that or something else that makes your low, and uh, what about your highs? Steve, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I think I'm going to preempt Mark because my low is Firefly and my high is rolling on. What he said. <laughs> Be good. So, yeah, I, I, I'll join you in Firefly as the low. But for me, the hanging tree pips uh, rolling on for the high spot. Yeah, but they're both up there for me. Um, but there we go. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Firefly. That's Uriah Heap, the first of our creepy crawly albums for this episode. Yeah, seriously, do give this a listen if you haven't heard it before. It is well, well worth it. Whatever age of Uriah Heap you're into or not, this is well, well worth a listen. So we better move out of the 70s and into the 80s. And uh, we're now moving on to Mark and his choice for this episode, the uh, brilliantly titled band Praying Mantis, Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, Praying Mantis. I mean, heavy as fuck. I mean, almost thrash. At least that's what you'd think with a name like Praying Mantis, wouldn't you? But the truth is, they're not. There are people, many, many people who 
I think I referenced this at the, at the top of the show, who think that praying mantis are this sort of kind of highly revered, blink and you'll miss them, stroke of genius that happened at the turn of the 70s into the 80s. Um, yeah, they are widely thought of as one of the first melodic heavy metal bands or hard rock bands. And I'd never heard them before I picked this album. I picked it on the strength of they were a band I was aware of in the early 80s but never listened to, not that I avoid them, just, you know, you just, the way kids, the way that we had to listen to music 40 years ago was very different to the way we listen to it now. So unless you heard it from a mate or you took a chance and went out and bought the album, you just, there was nowhere to hear this stuff. So I just never came across them. So I thought, well, I'll do that. We'll do that because I've never heard it before and, and comes with all this sort of great baggage. And I've been slightly underwhelmed by it all if I'm being absolutely honest, there are some bits on it. There's a couple of highs on it, but I think it's largely forgettable. And I'll be absolutely you know, fascinated to hear what you two think about it because you've got different ears. I was really disappointed. I was expecting something really quite special, not necessarily amazing because in 1981, there was very little that was absolutely amazing. But, uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe I'm missing the point that actually... In 1981, this was sufficiently different from everything else that was going on that it would have stood out and it would have it would have been appreciated for what it was, which was a melodic rock album. Does it stand the test of time? No, it doesn't. And the production doesn't stand the test of time. I don't think the songwriting stands the test of time. Did I enjoy it? Yes. I, after a fashion, there were bits of it that I thought were the equivalent of a musical car crash happening in slow motion. There was some stuff that I really enjoyed and there was some a lot of stuff that I just went, like a Chinese meal, really. You eat it, it's gone, and you kind of feel like you know you haven't eaten anything at all. And I, I so yeah, it's fine. It's fine, but it's not what I was expecting. So, how did you two get on with it? I mean, I, I, what I thought of it is kind of irrelevant to me because I know what I think about it. But I, I wonder whether you had the same experience or not. As you say, I mean, you've got you've got a. A band called Praying Mantis. You've got a gatefold sleeve designed by Rodney Matthews. And it was a complete shock when I pressed play. I was expecting Diamond Head or Heavier. And I got Light Magnum picking two of the bands that that Matthews did cover sleeves for. You know what I mean? Uh, I, mean, yeah, I was I was expecting sort of yeah Judas Priest and and I mean, yeah and, and heavy Diamond Head and that that kind of thing and it took me a while I think maybe to to retune uh, because actually I would say there are track certainly a couple of tracks on this album that have grown and grown and grown and grown on me all the way through the week the more I've sort of got 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 used to this and. Thinking, okay, so this is more in in the lighter end of the spectrum, let's say. So I've enjoyed this the more the week has gone on. There's some ups and downs, and there's one absolute howler, one why, but we'll get on to that in a minute. But, yeah, a couple of tracks on this I think are really, really good. It's not a disaster. It's not a a bad, bad album. It's just it it wasn't what I was expecting, and even once I got my head around it, for what it was, I thought it was slightly underwhelming. Steve? What, yeah, it's, it's an alignment of the planets that's done my head in it. It's the, the Nawabam thing straight away. 
So you're immediately yeah. thinking it's a debut Wobham album. And you know I've missed out on that first time round. So I've come back to that retrospectively. And I know that for every on through the night, there were half a dozen piles of shite debut Nwobham albums. And I don't like the name Praying Mantis. Then you discover that it's their first and or only album because the record company gave up on them, presumably because it's shit. So therefore my heart has sunk even further. Um, and then I play it and it's, and it's contrary to everything. Every, all my preconceptions are indeed misconceptions because there is some good stuff on there. There's some really, really fun stuff on it. Even the tracks, Mark, Richard said, you know, about the sort of, you know, that sort of priest feel, you know, this is, you know, flirting with suicide, lovers to the grave, children of the earth. You, you think you know what you're getting. Nah, you're not getting any of that at all. As soon as this album starts with this great track, and you'll tell the story about Cheated Nice Surrender, I'm sure. When you, when you hear that first song, you just think, well, no, nah, I wasn't going down that road at all. And I really wasn't. And yet, so now I'm thinking... Well, why weren't they bigger than they were? And I'll leave that question out there because I, I, I don't know what the story, I don't know what the backstory was. Why weren't they bigger than that? Great quote from Malcolm Dome of this parish. He said he'd seen them in a concert and he said, 1980 promises to be a great year for the Mantis lads. Make sure you catch them live very soon and be in on the birth of something really exciting. And that's what everyone said, wasn't it? And that's what everyone said. I've seen concert reviews about them upstaging bigger bands than them. Um, and they were a big hit of Reading, I think, and just nothing odd. And I like it. I like it. Okay, good. Well, you're going to have to tell the story about cheating and I surrender because I don't know it. So I'll leave you to do that. Um, <laughs> let's do the uh, – clearly my research hasn't gone far enough. Um, <laughs> so let's just do the nuts and bolts of the album. It's released on March the 20th, 1981, recorded in December and January. They knocked them out like shelling peas back then. It was released on um, Arista. Arista? I, I always used to call it Arista. I don't know where it's pronounced. I don't give a <laughs> shit, really. It's 39 minutes and four seconds long. The producer, a gentleman but with a double-barreled name, went by the moniker of Tim Freeze Green. Battery Studios in London was where they laid it down. Previous album, well, there wasn't one. It was a debut. Their next album, well, that was 10 years later, completely different band predator in disguise almost irrelevant really this would also qualify for a calling cards episode because got a couple of brothers in it tino troy and chris troy tino on guitar and vocals shared vocal duties actually with steve carroll also on guitar and vocals chris troy was on bass guitar and vocals and dave potts uh, was on drums and all percussion it got to number 16 in the uk on the uk chart so you know 1981 hard rock heavy metal album gets to number 16 that's quite an achievement because let's be honest uh, the world wasn't particularly welcoming outside the hard rock fraternity so it did pretty well didn't chart in america no surprise there absolutely no idea how many it sold it has got nine tracks five on side one four on side two cheated uh, all day and all of the night, Kinks cover, and there's a link to the doors here as well. Uh, Running for tomorrow, Rich City Kids, Lovers to the Grave, Turn It Over and You Get Panic in the Streets, Beads of Ebony, Flirting with Suicide, and finally, the longest track on the album, Children of the Earth. As I say, 39 minutes and four seconds. Shall we give it a listen?
Bosa with Cheated. It's the first song. I understand, Steve, there's a link between this and I Surrender. <laughs> yes. They were both, Rainbow and Praying Mantis were both offered I Surrender as a track to release as a single. And Rainbow basically got in there first. And Praying Mantis licked their wounds and thought, oh, well, we can match that with Cheated. And much as I love it, one of them went top five and the other one very definitely didn't. So I think they got the bum end of the rap with that one. But And I do like Cheated, but yeah, they could have been released. They could have been sitting on I Surrender. Joe Linterny, you see? That's what the <laughs> Joe Linterny effect yeah. is. Oh, I, don't, I don't know what to think of this track. I really don't. It's I kind of quite like it, but I kind of quite don't like it either. It's At this point, first time around, I'm thinking, this is nothing like what I was expecting. Yeah. And I don't like the guitar runs in it, but I quite like the chorus. Mm. It's quite a catchy chorus. And it's this is about as, I was going to say, it's about as Nwobam as, as it gets on the album. It's actually more punk, isn't it, than, than even than Nwobam. It's kind of post-punk Nwobam. It's all right. It's not a bad track. Um, does it set my world on fire as an opener? No, not really. Yeah, it's a funny opener, isn't it? <laughs> there would be better tracks on this album to to open with. It is. I mean, it, it's it, it's one of the weird ones where it's 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 sort of upbeat and positive, but about being cheated. So um, okay, uh, I'm cheated. I'm very happy about it. It's marvelous. <laughs> um, and it is. Um, so so uh, sound wise, uh, my my description for anyone out there. This is Thin Lizzy meets Eddie and the Hot Rods doing Do Anything You Want to Do. <laughs> yeah, I had a bit of John Parr in there as well. But, yeah, I'd, I'll go with Thin Lizzy and Eddie and the Hot Rods. I think that's fair. Steve? Yeah, I've not been that forensic. I'm just sitting there thinking, what's not to like here? And I'm tapping my feet. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I just love it. I just put a smile on my face. The word I had for that pre-chorus was gooey. And gooey is a good word. I like it a lot. It's just not... <laughs> It's not the opener I thought we were going to get. Well, if the opener wasn't what you thought you were going to get, I don't think any of us were expecting a Kinks cover as the second track either. They absolutely fail the test of, shall we do something different with a cover? I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite a big Kinks fan, but I, didn't, I don't like this song by the Kinks. I actually quite like it by Praying Mantis, oddly enough, even though they don't really do anything with it. I prefer it to the original, which is probably, I don't know, heresy, sacrilege, one of the two. But yeah, it's all right. It's a, it's a straightforward cover. Just eeny, meeny, miny, moe, it? Beatles, Kinks or Rolling Stones. They just had no, I mean, why do these bands do it? You know, which, which, so which one would we choose? We'll do the Kinks and we'll do all day and all of the night. As you say, as covers go, it's, you know, it's not a shocker by any stretch. They're into part two of, of their vocalising trio here aren't they this is tino troy i think doing vocals and they're trying to tap into his inner diamond dave because there's an awful lot of kind of you really got me feel about this as well which obviously you've done a couple of years before yeah as i say it's a decent enough cover but it's still a cover i've written as always with these things why why and it's track two mm. for christ's sake an average pub band could do this don't know why they're bothered pulls the album down score wise um so track three is a song called Running for Tomorrow. Again, there are bits of this that I really like and there are bits that I really don't like at all. And uh, this is a, a recurring theme. I think one of the problems with this album for me is the shared vocal duties. So here's the thing, right? If you think about the other albums that were out in 1981, you've got High and Dry, 
killers. No Sleep to Hammersmith was out. Denim and Leather was out. You've also got Gillen, Future Shock. You've got Ozzy Osbourne and Dire of a Madman. And whether you like those albums or not, the one thing they all had was a very distinctive sound. There was an Iron Maiden sound. There was a Def Leppard sound. There was an Ozzy sound. There was a Motorhead sound. You were never in any doubt about who you were listening to. This talk about split personalities, I think that's my issue with it, is that I can't, I can't align my head so that I can hear it as a complete entity. I don't mind the song. I think it's a bit lightweight. It's got a nice chorus. But there's no, there's no thread running through this album that I can hang on to. So that, that's my issue with it. And the vocal duties are an issue. I have no idea. I've not discovered why they felt the need to have three vocalists. I don't think Steve Carroll's got a particularly great voice. Is it Steve Carroll on this one? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's okay. I don't think any of them are particularly memorable singers. Um, and I think their album suffers accordingly. With a good singer, I think this track would be a pretty decent song. I like that kind of Genesis-y ELP start, and then it, you know, which is a bit proggy, and then it goes into that. It does start to drive some decent harmonies, a decent solo. It's all decent, lots of decent stuff going on here. So I like this track, and I don't think the vocals do it any good. And like you, I'm three tracks in, and I've, there's no identity already. But that doesn't help by the cover, but there's still no identity. Yeah, I know with the vocals, I guess I mean, what's fascinating is I, I love the vocal harmonies throughout this. Mm. It's almost as if we've got three backing singers, but yeah. no leads. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, running for tomorrow moves into Rich City Kids. <sighs> Should we move on? <laughs> That's the other thing about it, is there's no attack on the album, is there? It never kind of just comes out of the gate at you. It's it's all almost quite apologetic. It, it is, it's kind of a, like a, it's us. It's us with a sort of slightly rocky song. Is that all right? <laughs> um, and, and actually... If they owned these songs, and I think the production's an issue here as well, because I think I think if the production had been better and the whole thing was bigger, it would sound a lot better. This has also got a bit of a punk hangover, and pff, it doesn't work. I just think, is it the weak point of the album? I think it is for me. The production is really lets it down. I, th- I think it could have been so much punchier. My note for Rift City Kids is, I mean, it, it, it's it's a poor man's week. Tonight I'm going to rock you by Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw the track title, I didn't think I'd like it. And, yeah, I was proved right. They should, they can't be talking about, what's that lyric in there? Um, it's all part of Junior's making. I mean, nah. The, the, the only Junior reference in rock is, have you seen Junior's grades? So let's just... Forget that shit. And they're American. They're allowed to say it. There is redemption, though, because side one finishes on one of two absolute highlights for me on this album. One of three, maybe, actually. This is Lovers to the Grave. It's got a really nice instrumental opening and quite a haunting feel to it. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't interrogated the lyrics particularly this is almost ahead of its time because there are a lot of albums around in so 84 85 that had a similar vibe to them so you know were praying mantis ahead of their time and and therefore out of time were they just left behind i don't know lovely harmonies on it there's something almost pink floydish about yeah very definitely isn't there so i really like this i'm not entirely sure whether it's my highlight or not yet this is kind of another listen through for me and I'm still making decisions, but I really like this song. 
I knew you two would. There's, I've got the Floyd connection straight away. Even the dual singing, it just sounds like so it sounds like is it Gilmore and Waters presumably would have done it together. And it yeah. just sounds like it. I knew you'd like it, um, and I do. To be fair, it's um, yeah one of the one of the highlights on the album and shows some real good sort of songwriting skill. I think I, I, I like what they've done here. And then, and you you fear they're going to spoil it, and they don't. And you know, credit to them for that. How patronising is that? But anyway. I don't. Yeah, so here's a song where there is no lead vocalist. They're actually singing together throughout, yeah. and it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. This is this is a highlight for me too. So, thank God for that. Praying Mantis have finally arrived with something that we can all absolutely align ourselves to. And actually, I think they continue that on side two with the opening track, which is. Panic in the Streets, again, it's got a lot of punk sentiment to it. It's got a chanty, nice kind of chanty gang chorus on it. And um, it's a bit faster, a bit heavier, a bit more attack on it. And you kind of think, all right, that's two in a row now. I don't think it's anywhere near the best song on the album, but I, I like the vocal on it. And I like the sort of the relentlessness of the riff. So, yep. That's an uptick, and I'm quite happy now. Yeah, it's good. It's got a good gallop, isn't it? I like the guitar works good on this. I think good finish. Vocals are poor, though. Vocals are poor on this. Side two is a vast improvement on side one. Let's not be about the bush. Three of the four tracks on side two are really good, and this is one of them. I've got a song in my head all night, all week by another band, and I can't pin it. But I do like this. It goes at a nice lick. Decent, decent enough song. Decent enough opener. The best is yet to come. Given that there are only four tracks on side two, is Beads of Ebony one of Steve's highlights? I suspect Beads of Ebony is the is the one that falls short for you, Steve? Spot on. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, it's, this is okay. Yeah, it's nice enough beat and it rolls into a decent riff, but um, veers off into a very cheesy chorus, which doesn't do any favours. It gallops out, doesn't it? Got a good gallop. But no, this is, this is not one of the, the high spots. Yeah, it, it's one of those songs that feels like it's stuck together. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it, we, they start off a bit thin, Lizzy, and then then it's, there's the punchy chords come in. It turns into a different song, and then there's an AOR song in the chorus, and then a slow thin Lizzy solo, and then the thin Lizzy chug comes back in for the end. And I'm thinking, no, it's, it's, you should have thought about this a bit more, gentlemen. Um, it, it, it's all right. <laughs> In conclusion, it's all right. The thing that got me about this song is I kind of pictured the scene in the studio during the intro, which I think lasts for about a minute and a quarter, and them sort of just playing because they've got to keep playing, but they're not entirely sure when to start singing. You know, it's almost, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's stop and do a different riff, and then we can (laughs) sing over that, isn't it? There's that kind of feeling to it. There's no excuse in the Bay City Rollers chorus. I mean, there's just no excuse oh, for that whatsoever. I mean, that's an entire delicatessen of cheese, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It really <laughs> is. It really is. Yeah, not a, not a great moment. Luckily, the next track, which is Flirting with Suicide, is, uh, again, we're, we're back to a punk sensibility. This is a band that has got a f- foot in two decades because half the album is kind of a hangover from 1978-79, and half the album is a foot in 1985. And I think therein lies the problem for Praying Mantis, because there's some really good stuff on here, but it's, it's none of it is at the right 
chronological time. No. Flirting with Sirius, I love the chorus. I love the, the riff. Again, I'm quite happy with this. That's three out of four that are not bad. Well, three out of four that are actually pretty good songs. And it's just a shame that the front end of this album is so poor. Yeah, wire tracks eight and nine, not one and two. I mean, they've saved the best till last. By a distance in my eye, this is the best track on the album to me. I absolutely adore it. It it has got that kind of melody that doffs its hats to cheated, and I did like cheated, as I say, for all its cheese. There's a great pace to this. There's a great balance. The bass and the drums driving along a decent solo, a decent bridge. It's just Tino Troy's voice. It doesn't ruin it. But if they'd have had a really good singer, yeah, it's only a step up. This again, you got. Ridiculously positive song for a, a seemingly dark subject matter. <laughs> yeah, I know, yes. Some really nice guitar work on this song as well. So we move to the last track on the album, which is Children of the Earth, which is not quite an epic, although I think that's probably what they were shooting for. But I think that's a really, really good song to play out on. And it kind of leaves you feeling, what might they have done if, if a record label had picked them up and put some proper money behind them. If the three or four songs on this album that I think are superior, which is just one man's opinion, isn't it? But if they've taken those and gone, okay, we'll build on that. Album two, we'll just do more of this. I think they could have been really big. Maybe all of that stuff that was around them sort of in the the early 80s, maybe that was all just kind of about potential rather than what they realised in in reality. Who knows? But um, this is a really good out song, I think. This is the one that's grown on me the most through the week. I, it's, yeah, it's, it's amongst my highs. Uh, there's a real good arrangement, complexity of songwriting on, on this one. This is prog. This is, is a prog track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything that you two said, great way to finish it. Very happy with that. As you say, the record company, they tossed them to one side, didn't they? They didn't even give them a chance to write a second one, did they? So, Okay, boys, highs and lows. Uh, Steve, let's start with you. Right, the low is um, Rich City Kids, and the high is, oh, it's a tough one, Flirting with Suicide. Okay, all day and all of the night, please don't do a cover track too. And, oh, it's tight, Lovers to the Grave, or... Oof. I'll, I'll give it to Children of the Earth. Those two tracks are fantastic. Really, really like them. Okay, uh, I'm going to nominate the cheese fest that is Beads of Ebony as my low, and my high is very definitely uh, Lovers to the Grave. Uh, so there you go. That is album number two, Praying Mantis, Time Tells No Lies from 1981, a real mixed bag. If ever there was one, it would be interesting to see where that ends up in the Hall of Fame. Do you know what? I've got a sneaking suspicion that it might do all right in the end. It's not going to be gate crashing the top of the top of the table, but you know, it might do all right. It might nestle in quite nicely because there's, it's not an album that is really, really poor. It's just not really, really good. So there you go. Prey Mantis, 1981, Time Tells No Lies. And it's time for album number three, which was a blind pick, I think, Steve. Spiders, Rock and Roll, Gypsies. I'm not sure. Have they broken the record for the number of times they can get rock and roll into a song title or a lyric? Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, I know. I was, tr- I was trying to count it up, and then I was trying to find some um, 
I was trying to Wikipedia lots of lyrics, and sadly there aren't many of them on there. There's so little of this band on Wikipedia, I can't bloody Google anything. And the other bugger about this is that Richard doesn't like covers. We've got about nine on this, nine status quo covers, which is um, which will test a man's patience. But, um, yeah, Rock and Roll Gypsies by Spider, a four-piece from Wallasey in, uh, in Merseyside, who slightly worryingly, having picked this album blind, I then discovered that none of the four members had ever been in their band before. So that should have set the alarm bells a-clanging. And before I listened to it, I did say to you that they had been referred to as um, Merseyside status quo. And you replied back, having listened to it before I did, you said, they're not Merseyside status quo, they are status quo. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's a lot of fun. I mean, anything, you've just mentioned the word status quo and it puts smiles on faces. So we've just got, we've just got Mersey smiles on our faces. That's what we've got here. Listen, they were tight, they were decent, they were respected by their fans. But when you look at their back catalogue, not so much uh, vinyl, but you know, they performed at Reading in, in 1982. They were regular headliners at the Marquee, toured with some big bands. I think they were just kind of jobbers, you know, that they were guaranteed to prop up anyone's bills because um, they did work hard, toured with the likes of Slade and Uriah Heep and Alice Cooper and Raven and UFO and Gillen because they toured with Gillen on their breakup tour, the money tour, and they said all you could hear was the rows next door in the dressing room. And I got this from the article that Mark, you copied us into, and I've rec- recommended reading for anyone who's out there. It's on Classic Rock online. I don't know what the website is, but probably is Classic Rock. And the story was called Think You're Unlucky, You're Lucky You Weren't in Spider. And it, it's this really touching and tender biopic of all the misfortunes that seem to have dogged this band over the years. Great anecdotes, very mischievous uh, from them and about them. But, but your overriding takeaway from that piece and from doing a little bit more research is the lack of bitterness from any of these boys. Because they didn't make it. You could cynically listen to this and say well that's not a great surprise but no that's unfair because there's some fun on here there is some fun on here but anyway that piece is well worth a read because it it shows them in a really good light you know these are the cars they're dealt and you know they just didn't work out they were ignored by the press the the, the music press hated them and they said in that piece that it's because they didn't conform to nwobham stereotypes he said everyone was trying to sound like priest or maiden and they never fitted in they were branded quo soundalikes and were regarded as a joke and the bottom line is they are quo soundalikes and there's just no escaping that but but that's the music that quo plays it is what it is and i've enjoyed it because i enjoy listening to status quo i can't listen to an album of it and what's really interesting about this album is that Side one is is a status quo tribute side and yet side two you hear some more stuff stuff that they should have done and you just think, actually, there was more to this band. Potentially, there was more to this band than they showed with this album. It will not fare well in our Hall of Fame because it's just of a type and it's not really a type that I'm that fussed about. We'll see what you boys think. Well, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. You've, you've said it. it. It puts a smile on your face. It is heavier. It's got a heavy quo, isn't mm. it? You can tell they had fun recording it. I bet they have fun playing it. And I bet their gigs are a riot. <laughs> it's not, you know, exactly musically, compositionally challenging, is it? But it, it, it's a good fun romp. Let's get one thing straight. If you're going to do status quo style music, you have to do it better than status quo. Mm-hmm. And they don't. That's the truth, and that's that's the problem. That piece in classic rock, I think it was, was it by 
Malcolm Dome or Dave Ling, one of the two. It made me love them even more, yeah. actually, as, as human beings, because there is no bitterness. There's a lovely moment, and I'm paraphrasing it, it was a lovely moment where I think it was Jim, was it um, Dave, Dave Lee or Jim Lee out of Slade? Yeah. Uh, when they were touring with him, said, you know, you can't just do that stuff all the time. You've got you, you to find something different to do. And they were quite quite resistant to that. And then after it had all imploded, they're kind of, you know, they're honest enough to go, he was right, we should have done, we should have done something different. Talk about a band that had bad luck. The, the record company goes under on the day that their third album is due to ship to the shops. Yeah, I mean, it's just an absolute, I mean, talk about a rock and roll story. And you can't help but love them. I mean, they're just out for the beer and the shagging, really, weren't they? I mean, that was basically what they wanted. Yeah, it would have been nice if they'd made it. But, I mean, they all look, all, is it all four of them, I think, look back as and say it was the best time of their lives. And yet it was such a, a disaster <laughs> in so many ways. But they had the time of their lives. And you can hear that in the songs. And you know what? I started off hating it. I don't hate it today. Yeah. Would I listen to it again? Probably not. But does it move me to be hypercritical? No. It it puts a sm- it put a smile on my face for the week. And I don't think I don't think we will be hypercritical because I don't think it's the sort of music that you can be hypercritical of because it is pretty standard fare, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's hard to slate. Just a few facts and figures. Uh, Nineteen eighty two. Rock and roll gypsies. It's under 40 minutes, produced by Tony Wilson at Rock City Studios in Shepparton and the magnificently named Arnie Shack in Pool. The personnel, Cole Harkness on guitar and vocals, Dave Sniffer-Brice on guitars, and the Burroughs brothers, Brian and Rob on bass and drums, respectively. Ten tracker. And just to correct you on one thing, they weren't in it for the booze and the shagging, just the shagging, because they realised they couldn't play Pissed, so they had to That's go right. teetotal. <laughs> that's right that's right and um and he was called sniffer apparently because he was always sniffing around everybody's girlfriends that's right <laughs> oh they lived in life do you know the one big mystery on this this album the, the biggest mystery of the lot is it's produced by the producer of the friday rock show so if the friday rock show producer the estimable tony wilson has produced it why on earth was Tommy Vance not playing it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. And we're never going to find out. <laughs> oh, that's a great point. As I say, it is a ten tracker, five on uh, five on each side, and the first one is called AWOL. 
that's what we start with. I was trying to think of a status quo song title, actually, because that's probably pretty much what it is. So there you go. That's where we are. It's um, straight out the Rick Parfit locker, this one. I like it. It's got a bluesy, boogie feel with a hard rock edge, sort of ACDC on steroids. What I would say is that if this was your one dose of status quo and they were going to move on, I'd say, fine, this is okay. But having listened through the album, I now know what I'm letting myself in for. But it's a jolly enough opener. Again, a bit of punk in it, isn't mm. there? You know, it's, it's not just quo. I mean, it is quo, but there's something else going on as well. It's not just mm. a complete rip-off. No. So, yeah, I, none of this album is unpleasant to listen to, I don't think. You smile, partly because it is so derivative, but partly because, actually, it's just good fun. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. As you say, Steve, the uh, the track you're looking for is Down Down. That's, yeah. And, and this is... This is thumb in belt hoops, elbows <laughs> out, and and away you go. Yeah. Um, with a small smattering of um, the original uh, anti-nowhere league, so what? With I've been there, yeah. I've been here, I've been there. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But the question is, how quickly are you tired of it? Because part two is called Talking About Rock and Roll. Several apostrophes in there. Um, and this is our first rock and roll reference um, in the song title. Obviously, we already had it in the album cover, in the album name. And just for a few seconds, you think this might be a different track, and then, nah, the riff kicks in and um, and we're off again. Again, I, th- I, I actually like this more than the opener. I think it's, it, again, the smile is firmly affixed, and I think the chorus is very good, better than the first one, which was just a punk chorus. This is... Not quite so punky, but anyhow, it's, it's fine. We're, we're part two into a journey, so I'm, I'm kind of getting used to it. But so far, so good. If you're in a pub watching them do this, you're having the time of your fucking life. Yeah. I'll tell you that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is Status Quo's Caroline meets Hey Rock and Roll by Shawaddy Waddy. That's what I worked out. <laughs> what, what's not to like? Yeah. I mean, no wonder they played live so much. I mean, there must have been an absolute... There must have must have been a riot going to their gigs. Must have been brilliant, you know? I mean, if you were the headline act following this, you were thinking, oh, we've got to be on our game tonight because these boys would light up an auditorium. I'm sure of it. Let's be honest. If you're Slade or any of the other bands that Spider supported back in the day, you're not coming out to an audience that hasn't been warmed up. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is true. So, uh, track three is called Part of the Legend. Um, and again, it kind of teases you into thinking it's not a piece of, you know, boogie, punk, rock. This one, we're on the slippery slope. If, if, if the house band played this at someone's 60th birthday bash at the Village Hall, it would get all the oldies on their feet. That's kind of where we are with this now. It's it's getting a little bit too... It's getting a little bit too Village Hall. <laughs> It's the th- it's the tune that comes on at the uh, wedding disco, and uh, <laughs> Gran says, "Oh, I quite like this one." And uh, the theme is continued in track four with with a song called um, "Did You Like It, Baby," which is I've just written ditto. <laughs> I do I quite like the prolonged guitar solo into this in as much as it's something slightly different, but it, it soon drifts off into where we were before. It's okay. I, I can't, I'm not a big fan of um, Cole's singing either. Cole Hartness. It's not, um, 
well, I mean, it was he was never going to be Sinatra, but it's um, yeah, not great singer. Two two things. One, New Orleans. Yes. <laughs> and two, if you have to ask her, you've already got your answer. <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. I'm getting slightly weary. Yeah, I know. But it's all right. Yeah. Side one finishes with uh, them that start the fighting, don't fight. There's a kind of poor man's who start to this, but it it, it doesn't take long before it's back into the usual groove. Hartness sounds, um, Hartness sounds more and more like Lemmy as each track goes by, which is um, which is quite a good noise. And this is the heaviest thing yet, incidentally. So... I, I, I don't dislike it, but I am also beginning to get a little bit jaded. And this is this is the great thing about vinyl, because of course you can pause by turning it over, which is a good thing to do. Is this down down again? <laughs> As Steve said, it, it does it does sound like who, the Who at the start, and then then status quo break down the door. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't. Um, I think actually this song is a bit more original in terms of composition. Yeah. I like the pills and there's some there's some other bits and pieces going on. And the the chorus did get in my head this one. <laughs> well, if if that was the only chorus that got in your head on this album, then brilliant. But unfortunately the one chorus that gets in my head is the final track. It bloody would be, wouldn't it? So um but more of that later. If side one got dull, then side two kicks off I think, really nicely with a couple of absolute bruisers. First one's called What You're Doing To Me, and it is slightly different. I mean, again, that sort of 12-bar boogie thing is tucked away, but this ticks a few more boxes. Riff doesn't change too much, but there's a build to it. Some choral harmonies, which are quite okay, and it's heavy. What you, what I have noticed is you can actually segue seamlessly from the guitar solo from them that start the fighting into the start of What You're Doing To Me and you will not see a join. It's like they're joined at the hip, those tracks. It's a good old-fashioned stomper, this, though, isn't it? Mm. I, I, it? It's almost got a little bit of southern rock to it. It's not bad, this. But we're saved. There is salvation from a lady who's dying for you. Track two, on side two, song of the album, absolute driver, metal gold. And it is metal. This is metal. This is let's park all boogie rock talk for a minute. Let's talk heavy metal, thank Christ. And and I'm thinking, where the fuck has this been? You know, give me more. I, I love it. It's got a top quality riff and it gets you banging in and it's um, you know, and I and I love it when it kind of quietens down and the and the back room kind of keeps thumping. It almost feels like being at an ACDC gig, you know, when they do all those sort of drawn out, you know, jailbreaks or whatever, when they just keep on going. If this was on Dirty Deeds and Bond Scott was singing, we'd be giving it ten out of ten. I think it's that good. I really, really like it. This is more Saxon than status quo, the way it yeah. starts off. What's funny is it, they're playing so fast, they almost can't keep up with themselves. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's great. It's, it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. This is, uh, this is a really good song. Yeah, track of the album, isn't it? Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. Which is, it's like they're just hanging on to the reins as they're being dragged down the road by it, um, which I, I quite like because... 
there's there's a certain sense of abandon about it, which yeah. it's almost like they've let themselves loose, which Christ knows they needed to do because there's only so much you can be shackled by one riff. Yeah, and they've mixed it up and it's great. I, I really like this. That's the point. This this album was crying out for it, wasn't it? And it's got it, which is, um, you know, a joy and a gem and it elevates the album. And unfortunately, just when they've got you by the nuts, they drop you spectacularly off a cliff edge with Till I'm Certain which sounds like a Bulgarian folk song. And then the drums kick in, and then it just sounds, well, crap, uh, for want of a better word. It's just, um, I think it's awful. (laughs) I just think it's awful. (laughs) It's like something off kids' TV. I don't get it. I I think this is great. (laughs) No, I'm joking. I'm joking. It's shit. It's awful. There is quite a nice, about, I don't know, it's about two and a half minutes in, I think. There's... I quite like there's that it breaks out and there's a really nice guitar solo there in is. it and it it all kind of they redeem themselves a bit with it but everything around it is just awful an yeah. absolute dog's breakfast and the chorals are shocking the chorals are, you're right the guitar solo is as close as to a redeeming feature as this song gets but it's going to need more than that as in like rewriting or leaving off the album altogether so what we do know is that rock and roll forever will last because um that's what they tell us on track nine. Ha! And the quo are back. So more boogie rock done at pace and with volume. This is fine. I'm tiring of it, but it's fine. We're in a situation where we're trying to find something new to say yeah. about the same track that we've now heard eight times. <laughs> and, uh, and it's getting hard, isn't it? It's getting hard. It is. Guitar solos, good. Dual, dual guitar solos are right. Yeah. The last track is called All The Time. Um, this was the track that appeared on the BBC album Reading Rock One, um, which was a live compilation from Reading in 19, the Reading Festival in 1982, in which Spider opened proceedings on the Sunday for such luminaries as Marillion. Well, I say Marillion. I mean, had anyone heard of Marillion in 82? Perhaps. Richard, presumably. Twisted Sister, Y&T, Michael Schenker. Unsurprisingly, it's... Very much back to type and more twelve bar stuff. And I, I, this is not very good at all. This is not a great way to end the album, is it? Not <laughs> good at all. And this is this is the chorus that's he sings all the time. I say sings. He growls all the time, thirty seven times. And the song's only three and a half minutes long. So when I finish playing this, it's just jammed in my fucking brain. And. It's, um, <laughs> And, and and I need to play something else. I need to just stick some something on just to get this out of my head because it's not a good thing to have in your head. Do you want to give us some highs and lows? Ooh, yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I think this is this is all relatively easy. I think till I'm certain is without a doubt the low. And my high, I think, is uh, probably the same as yours, Steve. Lady, I'm dying for you. Yeah. No, I agree with you on both of those. Yeah, Richard. Yeah. Thirded. Yeah, those two for me as well. Brilliant. Unanimity when it mattered. Now we need to discover if we have unanimity when it comes to um, scoring these things, because that's what we do. We go off and score them track by track, work out the averages, and see where they come in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So, yes, scores-wise, let's start off with Uri Heaps. Firefly from 1977. So how did we do? Steve, you gave it a 7.125. Mark gave it a 7.6375. 
and I gave it a 7.5 dead, and uh, that gave Firefly an overall of 7.42 and a little bit. Mark, how did Praying Mantis do? Uh, did all right, actually. In the end, as I suspected it might do, because it was entirely consistently average. <laughs> um, so, Steve, you gave it uh, 7.1. We're rounding up. I gave it 7.3 on the same basis. And um, Richard, you gave it 7.2 to give it an average overall score of 7.15926. What about status um, Spider? <laughs> yeah, that was consistent as well, just consistently less than average. So I gave it, I gave it a, a dazzling score of 6.8. Mark, you gave it 6.65. Richard gave it 6.25 for the final grand total of 6.56667, 6, 6, 6, which would rather suggest that it's going to be quite some way down our Hall of Fame. So let's go over there and uh, see exactly where it falls. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So welcome to the Hall of Fame. Uh, We've scored the albums. We've now entered them into the big list, uh, which is now 153 albums long. Uh, So we're kind of making some headway. The relegation zone is looking quite interesting before we get on to where everything else is because they've got some pretty decent albums in there uh, sitting between numbers 90, well, 91 to 100. You've got Dio's in there, Kiss is in there, um, you've got Foreigner in there, Hanoi Rocks. So there are some decent albums, which I think probably just shows you how difficult it is now to get a decent placing in the Hall of Fame. So let's see where everything uh, ended up. Well, we go down towards the bottom, I suppose quite predictably, to find Spider sitting at 139, nestled between Britney Fox and Faster Pussycat. Funny enough, I was looking at the Hall of Fame earlier today and wondering whether those two would ever get split up. Because, um, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a while since we did them, and, and they, well, in fact, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's well... 29 episode 29 and they've been stuck together since then well not anymore um spider have um inveigled themselves in between the two of them and then we go up 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 a little bit but still sadly outside the top 100 praying mantis at 108 with time tells no lies between climbing by mountain and entranced by scorpions and i guess if you're praying mantis and you're looking at that list and you're thinking well we've come in above a fairly decent Scorpions album, then that probably tells you all you need to know about uh, Praying Mantis and Time Tells No Lies. And then just outside the relegation zone, um, sitting at number 86 between Hysteria and the Years of Decay, is Uriah Heep's Firefly. Probably of the three, that's the one that surprises me most. I thought that might do a bit better. How do you feel about those placings, boys? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I thought that would be a little higher as well, but, you know, hell, we marked him. Um, yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Where it's, it did far better than um, the other Uriah Heap album we did, which was, um, look at yourself on it, it's about 0.9 in total uh, better off than that, and it always felt a lot better than that, didn't it? What's interesting is that um, notwithstanding the albums we did tonight on this episode, 7.27 just to get into the top 100, and we thought that was a really high score back in the day. But, you know, now you're hanging on. Now you're hanging on with those sort of numbers. But, yeah, in terms of quality, I, I absolutely thought that Praying Mantis and Spider would be kind of where they were. 
So there you go, another three albums down, another three next time, uh, which we'll go away and choose now. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode as much as we've enjoyed doing it. It's been a voyage of genuine voyage of discovery over the past week of listening. And um, yeah, we'll be back next time with another three albums, albums number 154, 155 and 156 to put into the Hall of Fame. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 